and welcome to Turn On The Lights. I'm Kate Armate. And I'm Don Berwick. With Turn On The Lights, we put a spotlight on ways to improve the healthcare system in the U.S. Thanks for listening. Dr. Francis Collins is an example of how one person working with many teams over a long time can have a massive impact on the world as we know it. Dr. Collins is the scientist who led the Human Genome Project, an ambitious international research collaboration to decipher the chemical makeup of the entire human genetic code. As director of the National Institutes of Health, he served under three presidents, two Democrats and one Republican. And as The Atlantic said in 2022, in an era of historic polarization, Collins is the rare influential scientist who has managed to win and keep the trust of elected officials across the political spectrum. And trust is one of the topics we hope to discuss with him today. At a time when so many people in this country mistrust science and the healthcare system in general, Dr. Collins is trying to restore that trust and use both his prominence as a scientist and his faith to do just that. Dr. Collins, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Turn on the Lights. We're really excited to have you, and it honors us to have you with us. Don, it's a privilege to join you. You and I have been friends and colleagues for a while. This is a new kind of conversation, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad you're here. There's so much we could talk with you about. Your career in government and in science is legendary and long. <laughs> and I do want later on perhaps to ask you a bit of some of the lessons you've learned as a leader at the National Institutes of Health and in a government that is a difficult government right now and uh, what it's like to lead. But let's start with what I think may be your current top passion. You are launching or about to launch an incredible national effort to almost eradicate a dread disease. Can you tell us a bit about that? I certainly can. And yes, I am really excited. Some would say a little obsessed about this because it's one of those moments that in all of my career as a physician scientist uh, has almost never come across before. And here it is, the chance to basically eliminate a disease that's killing 15,000 people in the United States every year and many more worldwide, for which there is now a cure, not just a treatment, but a cure. The disease is hepatitis C. It's a viral disease that affects the liver. If you got infected, which is usually as a result of contaminated blood, then it incubates in your liver for many years, maybe 10, 15, maybe 20 years, but it all hides the time. And hides, it's a silent killer and results over time in fibrosis of the liver, it gets stiff and it doesn't function as well. And ultimately cirrhosis, the more severe form of fibrosis, and then ultimately your liver just fails. And that's it, unless you can get a transplant and transplants are hard to come by because there's a big difference in supply and demand. The other part of this that's also quite frightening is this is the most common cause of liver cancer in the United States, hepatitis mm -hmm. C. And the cancers that the virus causes generally don't respond very well to treatment. My brother-in-law died of hepatitis C about 10 years ago, and it was really hard to see that happening to a wonderful, relatively young person. There's various groups now that are particularly susceptible to this. Baby boomers who got a transfusion before we could screen for hepatitis C, which we could only start doing in 1993. They may be infected. Because it was transmitted in the blood. In the blood. And the blood supply in the United States wasn't screened routinely for hepatitis C before a certain period of time. Right. Not until yeah. 1993, because we didn't identify the virus to yeah. know what we were looking yeah. for. Hepatitis C, when I was in training... It was called non-A, non-B, because we didn't know what it was. We knew about hepatitis A, we knew about hepatitis B, and then there was all this other stuff. Yeah. And the other stuff, the C, happens to be the most dangerous of all of these. It causes a lot more deaths. More people die of hepatitis C each year in the U.S. than die of HIV AIDS by far. And yet it's not so well known. And the fact that just seven years ago, a treatment was FDA approved. It's not just a treatment, it is a cure. And it's very simple. It's one pill a day for 12 weeks. And the cure rate is 98%. 98%? 98%. That's not something we see very often. Yeah. And it's a brilliant achievement of medical research because the drug basically interferes with the virus's life cycle. So the drug doesn't actually have any targets in the human body. It's just the virus that takes a hit when you take this pill. How, so, how many people have gotten this medicine to date in the United States now? The total number is probably around a million. 
A million people have got it. And how many people suffer from hepatitis C? We right now don't have perfect numbers, but probably something like two and a half million people right now are already infected with this virus. It's they're lurking in their system and we have a cure for them. And a lot of them are not getting it. And that's the tragic part of this. After this little introduction, you would think, well, this is something to celebrate. Well, <laughs> it is if you're one of the people who got access God, to the yeah. drug and you're now cured. But if you're somebody who didn't have access because you're uninsured, or even if you're on Medicaid coverage, or certainly in other places, Native American reservations where this is particularly common, where it's been hard to get access, this is a very incomplete story. And know that these folks are out there and we're not doing something to reach them just doesn't seem right. It seems indefensible. How do you get hepatitis C? So again, it could be a blood transfusion before 1993. Since that, though, it's not blood transfusion. It's sometimes a dirty tattoo needle. It's sometimes a needle that was used for intravenous drug use. And the fastest growing group right now that are hep C positive are people who have had some experience with intravenous drug use. And because that also interacts with the prison system, if you go to some prisons, you will see hepatitis C may be present in as many as 30% of the people who are there. It can also be passed from parent to child, from mother to child. So really, we should be looking to see if pregnant women are hep C positive, and that's been recommended. But the testing hasn't been as broadly done as it should have been done, according to CDC. But I guess if you sort of look for the mainstream, most of the people now that we're trying to reach are people who at some point have had intravenous drug use as part of their history. And they may very well be the folks who don't have uh, particularly good health care right now. They may be in Medicaid. They may be uninsured. They may be in the prison system. But we can cure them. And can I ask you a question? Today, in the New York Times to this morning, there was an article about how harm reduction, which is this idea of reducing harms associated with intravenous drug use, mm -hmm. is becoming more of a bipartisan issue. Mm -hmm. There's some legislation that's been passed in Texas and mm -hmm. Louisiana and other mm -hmm. states. I'm just curious, you're in Washington, you're thinking about this a lot, and, and you're now working on a disease where harm reduction might matter. What's your sense of whether harm reduction approaches now have bipartisan support or not? It's variable. If you're talking about things like needle exchange mm -hmm. or syringe services, there are certainly people who do not support that, who feel that somehow that is encouraging more uh, drug use instead of less. I think the evidence actually is pretty strong that it does not encourage uh, more drug use, but it is still giving a queasy feeling <laughs> to some people on the right side of the political spectrum. I think for what I'm trying to do in terms of encouraging, we have this historic opportunity to eliminate a terrible yeah. disease. I think we ought to focus on just that. How do we find the folks who have the virus already in their system? How do we make it easy mm -hmm. to get them tested and cured? And yeah, a lot of those may well be people who are in opioid treatment programs. And for trying to help people get over the addiction, but not taking care of the virus. It's basically going to cut their lives short. What are we doing here? So you said a million people have gotten the treatment, but the other yeah. two and a half million that haven't gotten it, what's stopping us from providing that treatment today? Yeah, there are basically three things that are getting in the way. And all three of these are now proposed to be addressed effectively in a five-year plan that the president has put forward, which we'll come to in a minute. So one of the issues is just the clunkiness of finding out whether you need the cure or not. Currently, in order to know whether you're actively infected with hepatitis C, takes three visits to a clinic separated oftentimes by two or three weeks because the testing has to be sent to some central lab and there's an initial test on an antibody and then you have to have a test to see if the virus is really present in the blood and then you have to come back and get the treatment. And for people who don't have great transportation or all kinds of other reasons to not want to be in this space of coming back over and over again, we just lose people that mm -hmm. way. So we need point of care testing where you can come in a single visit, get the test. If you're positive, get the pills and walk out an hour later. That's the that, that could be in the doctor's office, emergency room. Absolutely. Could and does that exist now? Do we have in, in Europe? Europe? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. right. So it's out there. It's out there. It's, it's Yeah, the point of care technology, a company called Cepheid is doing this in many other countries, but not the United States because they haven't yet approached the FDA to get approval for this. We have done a lot to make that pathway look more attractive to them. And that process is now underway. 
in a rather creative partnership between NIH and FDA, the National Institutes of Health and the Food and Drug Administration, putting together a way that these kinds of tests can be quickly validated by objective third parties in a way that FDA looks at the data and go, okay, that's good enough. Because in the past, that often required iteration after iteration, and it might be two years later before you finally got the approval. We can do that much faster. We learned that with COVID. Those tests you can find in the pharmacy to do home testing for COVID. That was a lot of what we learned how to get validated and approved by FDA in a hurry. We can do that here. So that's one of the issues. Get the testing so that it's really efficient. The second issue is the costs. The initial costs of this cure was $90,000 per patient. That's not something most people are going to be able to afford unless they have really good third-party insurance. And even the third-party insurance was like, oh, maybe we ought to come up with some barriers. Oh, you got to see a specialist. Maybe you have to already show you have some damage to your liver. That's the one that really blows me away. You're trying to prevent the damage to the liver and you have to wait till you get it in order to have the cure. But some of those things happen. And they happened also with Medicare and with Medicaid. And if you were uninsured, the chance of access to a $90,000 a person drug was zero. The price has come down a bit, but it's still about 20, 25,000 per patient, which is still outside the range that many of the systems that try to provide cure can do. And so we're still short there. So what do we do about that? I think we have to come up with a solution that is making the drug easily available, especially to Medicaid patients, uninsured patients, people in the prison system. But you can't ask the companies to give it away for free. That's a non-starter. So the model, which actually has been done on a pilot basis in the state of Louisiana, is really creative. And it has an interesting abbreviation. It's called the Netflix model. Why would you pick that? Well, think about Netflix. What you do is you pay a fixed fee, and then you can watch as many movies and anything else that Netflix has, and you don't get any extra charge. So it's a lump sum for access to everything as a difference to what you might get if you're on uh, Prime, where you have to pay for each movie you want to watch. So why don't we try that for drug access? This is what Louisiana did. They made a deal with Gilead, the company that makes one of these drugs, and said, we will give you a lump sum. We still don't quite know what that number is. And if you agree to that, then you have to make the drug available for free to everybody in the prison system and everybody on Medicaid. Those were the populations they used. And it worked. It worked really well. And they were then highly motivated to go and find people who are hepatitis C positive because finding the next person doesn't cost you another dime as far as the drug costs. And you've already paid. As far as you know, the lump sum Netflix fee is affordable, something that the state could come up with or that is covered. I think probably what they did, I don't have absolute certainty of this, is they looked what they were spending in a given year on this drug at a high price. And they said, okay, we'll go with that total number, but now we'll give it to you as a lump sum, but you have to make the drugs available. Everybody can find. It helps that the marginal cost, the actual cost of making this drug is very low. It's an easy synthesis. It's a small molecule. So the company does fine here. And basically they also are doing something a bit altruistic, uh, making sure that people get the drug who otherwise would not. This reminds me, many years ago, I worked at the World Health Organization and we ran a project for tuberculosis uh, Mm -hmm. treatment. And what we did was there was a basic market failure. We had a lot of medications that were very expensive to treat drug-resistant tuberculosis. And the people that needed it the most were people in very poor countries and very difficult mm-hmm. to reach populations. And so you had this market problem. You yes. had expensive medicines and a, no market for them. And part of the reason that the medicines were expensive was because there was no market for them. So we guaranteed the volume yeah. to the drug makers and that allowed them to lower the price to a tenth of what it cost beforehand. And it was incredibly successful at getting the medicines to the right people. Yeah, that's the basic kind of model. There, I suspect you still had a price per patient. Yes. Uh, in so this that, case, you're capping. In this case, state. you basically decide upfront oh, what's the total cost, yeah. and then you just go find everybody you can. Is that a model that you could use for other conditions in other states? I'm just curious. It doesn't apply very well to very many other situations. Yes. I think it uniquely fits here, where yeah. you have a cure and a very large group of people who are not at getting access getting to medicine. It. Yeah. I will tell you, it will make companies nervous if it starts to sound like this become the norm for lots of other applications. Because mm-hmm. this, as you know, pharmaceutical companies are uneasy about what's happening with the Inflation Reduction Act and the fact there's going to be negotiation about drug prices and anything that sounds like it might be undercutting their model, they're going to be troubled by. But I don't think this one is in that category. 
companies are going to do fine. They're going to end up with this negotiation if we manage to get this going for the whole country where they make some money and they're going to get drugs to people that otherwise weren't going to get them. So it's a win-win if it's properly put together. We have to figure out exactly how to do that. There are two companies, which is a good thing, Gilead and AbbVie. So there's going to be a little bit of a tendency here to do competitively things that if you had just one company, maybe it wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. So want to be sure to get the benefit out of that in our system. But I so think you have testing and costs and drug access. Right. And what then else? the other is just the delivery of the care. So if you're right now somebody in prison and you're hep C positive, most of the federal and state and local prison systems are really not set up to find out that you need this and to make sure you get that. So we're going to have to provide some additional support uh, for healthcare delivery, certainly in the uninsured community where a lot of people get their health care from community health centers. They want to do this. They're very nicely set up, but they're going to need a little bit more assistance as well, just in terms of person power. It's not that hard. I think part of the misunderstanding that many medical professionals have had is this is going to be really complicated. It really isn't. (laughs) It used to be before we had these very effective cures that the treatment was pretty rough and it didn't always work. But now, again, this is a chance if you're a provider to have a really good day. (laughs) You can have somebody come in and get them tested, hand them their bottle of pills and know they're walking out of the door, going to get cured. Is the economic argument work for this? I mean, so these are still pretty high prices for medications and but of course, you're avoiding a lot of downstream costs. The cost right. of liver injury, like we're talking about right. here, is very costly. I've taken care of patients in the hospital that have come in with failing livers, and it's very difficult to treat patients in a situation like that. It costs and a lot. costs a lot of money. There's a lot of readmissions, a lot of, you know, from a patient perspective, it's a terrible disease. So I'm curious from your point of view, Ed, despite the fact that these medicines are expensive, does the cost argument work here? It absolutely does. I'm glad you raised this because this may make it now politically possible to mount this program at a time where Congress is very worried about spending money on anything. Mm -hmm. This is going to more than pay for itself if the economic analysis that I've seen is anywhere close to right. I economist Jag Chatwal at Harvard, working with another economist, Neeraj Sood at University of Southern California, have really done the very detailed analysis of what do you benefit as far as reduction in healthcare costs if you find these people in the next five years and get them all cured. And it is dramatic. It's both the reduction in treatment for liver failure and all those transplants and also treatment for liver cancer. It also turns out that hepatitis C induces in a lot of people other chronic illnesses, diabetes, Mm. chronic kidney disease, very clear data supporting that that's cause and effect, presumably from chronic inflammation. And if you get cured, this is a big study done by Optum, your diabetes and kidney disease risk goes way down. So you're stopping those outcomes as well. Hmm. Put that all together. Their estimate is in 10 years, just for the federal government's part of the healthcare costs, you would save $13.3 billion. Over, wow. over 10 years. Over 10 years. Wow. Yeah. And when you consider what it would cost to run this program, we think it probably in the neighborhood of five or six billion if you're going to take care of whatever that Netflix cost is, plus the delivery of healthcare and some beefing up of the testing. This still looks like in just in 10 years, you've gotten back twice what you put into it. Forgetting the economic argument for a minute, let's go back a minute. So I assume an average listener to this podcast doesn't have direct experience with prisons. They don't know someone or have a loved one or themselves been in prison, not a substance, not a drug user. I'm terribly sorry to hear about the loss in your family, but overall, why should they care? Why should people who would say, well, that's not my disease. Can you explain a little more about why it's an American, why you view it as a general public health issue from the viewpoint of an average American? Yeah, I think if there are in fact two and a half million people, that means something in the neighborhood of one or one and a half percent of adults are actually currently infected. So all of us know people who are probably hep C positive, who are maybe not talking about it or don't even know, probably 40% of people don't yet even know. So it's not a rare condition. And I think if we are of the mindset that everybody goes through some tough times 
And we ought to support them when they have a chance to try to rise through that into a better place. A lot of the people who are currently hep C positives maybe dabbled a little bit in some intravenous drug use and are now completely past that, living as productive members of society. And yet this is incubating in their system. Don't we want to try to help those folks? I mean, do we only care about people who are well off, (laughs) who can afford this right now? I think as a nation, if we aren't following the advice of doing something for those who are the most underprivileged and most in a stressful situation, then who are we anyway? And you can also argue that this is the way to eliminate this disease from the population. And sort of going forward, if you don't want to see another five or six million people with hepatitis C 10 years from now, let's get the virus out of circulation so that If you're somebody who gets an accidental needle stick as a healthcare provider, and that's how some people have gotten infected with hepatitis C, Naomi Judd had hepatitis C for that reason, then this is the way to do that too. So I think if we have stopped considering the medical needs of some subset of our population, then who are we? Uh, We really have that moral responsibility if we have the chance to save lives to do so. What is it that the president has announced now? And is it March 4th or whatever? So in the president's proposal going forward, the president's budget on March the 9th, the proposal was to deal with those three things, to get this point of care testing approved in the United States so that you can do test and treat in one visit, to put in place this kind of subscription model to greatly reduce the cost of the drug and essentially make it no longer a barrier for Medicaid, uninsured people and people in prison. And also to beef up the healthcare delivery system so that the actual testing and treating can get done uh, in populations where it's currently not happening. There's a little part of that last part that also says, let's reactivate our vaccine development. There is no vaccine for hepatitis C. And in the long term, you want that because it turns out you can get reinfected with this virus even after you've been cured. So if you ultimately really want to eliminate or even eradicate the disease, a vaccine will be necessary. And our vaccine efforts for hepatitis C have been a little bit stalled and be an opportunity to kick that back into action. Those are the pieces of this. That's now in the hands of the Congress to decide whether they agree that this is the right time and the right argument in terms of cost to go forward. And let me just get a little bit into the weeds here about how that gets decided. Here is a program which we believe will more than pay for itself in a 10-year period, you can, if you have such a program, put it into a part of the budget. It's the same part where Medicare is. It's called the mandatory part. It's not the discretionary part, which gets argued over every year, the mandatory part. You can actually have a program like this, put it forward, show that it pays for itself, and then get it supported once. And then it goes forward for its whole lifetime without oversight, of course. That is the current proposal from the president, that that's how you want to see this happen. The big question mark that's sort of hanging in the air right now is what will the Congressional Budget Office say about this? Who are they? The CBO. So Congressional Budget Office was put in place, I don't remember the history exactly, a long time ago, because Congress wanted to know when somebody said, this program is going to cost X dollars. Is that really right? Or this program is going to save Y dollars. Is that really right? So CBO is put in place to be the objective, highly sophisticated economic modelers. So when something is put forward, they decide whether they believe the numbers. And so we're waiting (laughs) for them to take this up. Again, having gone through all those numbers, I'm pretty confident that when they shake this down, they're going to agree. This is a program that will pay for itself. And the magic number is 10 years. This is totally arbitrary, but this is how the Congress works. If it doesn't pay for itself until 20 years, sorry, that's not interesting. If it's 10 years, then you got a deal. (laughs) So that's what CBO is going to have to try to figure out. And if they come up with a similar conclusion that this is paying for itself, or at least is cost neutral, then it gets a whole lot easier for people in the Congress who are very worried about spending money right now to say, okay, this is an exception. We should just do that. Our listeners here are probably curious at this point. It sounds like an interesting program that you're describing. What could they do to help Mm. you and help this effort to try to end hepatitis C as we know it in this country? Well, some of it is awareness. So CDC has made a recommendation that everybody who's 18 or above should have a hepatitis C test to see whether you're positive. Everybody. Everybody. Uh 
that is not being adhered to very effectively. I had to remind my doctor that I'm a person over 18 and I should have this <laughs> test too. Hey, I'm a physician. I had a few needle sticks when I was in training uh, from patients who I didn't know the status of. And of course, we were all worried about HIV AIDS at that point, but that was before there was as much attention to hep C. I want to know. I'm glad to say that test was negative, but you shouldn't basically have to ask your doc. This ought to be done across the board. And then we at least can figure out, okay, what are the numbers and how do we get those people on the appropriate platform to get cured as soon as possible? So awareness, get that out there. And then certainly when it comes to the opportunity to do this dramatic historic thing, make noise about it. <laughs> if you're in a position to do so, it's going to take that kind of noise, I think, at a time where Congress is dealing with a lot of things, maybe even a little distracted. <laughs> What's the time frame? When might this reach kind of public attention and be worth being a bit noisy about? Yeah, the time frame could be pretty short. If Congress can take this up in the course of May and June and July, this could even become law before the end of this fiscal year. So maybe even in September, you could see this probably attached to some other bill that is traveling through the Congress, because that's how you often get these things done. I know I'm getting into the weeds again. By the way, the community health centers have to be reauthorized by October 1st. So there is a related, rather important legislative opportunity that this could be added to as a combined component. So yeah, time is pretty short. And again, there is a coalition of advocates led by some very motivated people at the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease that have put together a strongly worded letter that has gone to all of the appropriate members of Congress who are in a role to make decisions saying this needs to be done. And I last heard there were 131 organizations that have signed on to that in strong support. So there is a groundswell, but groundswells are better if they're even bigger. So if people yeah. listening to this have a way uh, through their channels of making the story known to the deciders in the Congress, that this is something really historic, unique, and altruistic that we could do. It's compassionate. It's economically sensible. You can save tens of thousands of lives and tens of billions of dollars. So, you know, uh, people, I think, don't understand that when you write to a congressional office, senator or representative, it makes a difference to actually read the letters. Absolutely. Especially if they're personal letters. If it's some form letter and they get the same letter a hundred times over, that's less effective. It's not completely without effect. But if it's a personal letter saying, I have heard about this, I think this is something that Congress really should wrap their arms around. It's the right thing to do. That will make a difference. So get tested, become aware of your own status, Ron, as hepatitis C, write your congressperson, or if you're in an organization that might have some influence here, you know, engage your organization in this question around mm -hmm. ending hepatitis C. Mm -hmm. If you're a healthcare worker, now let me, let's me let talk about this from a healthcare perspective. If you happen to be a nurse or doctor or a healthcare leader somewhere who's listening to us right now, what would you suggest to them as yeah. for what they can do? I mean, you could wait till Congress authorizes this and pays for it and whatever, or you could start working on it, I imagine, tomorrow. Absolutely. I think a lot of care providers think of hepatitis C as like, oh, that's a really awful disease. I'm not sure I want to get in there and try to do something. Because 10 years ago, again, when my brother-in-law was dying, the treatment for this was really rough. It was interferon, it was ribavirin, it was like terribly toxic. You felt terrible for six months and the chance that it actually cured you was only about 30%. And anybody who went through that as a provider thought, I just don't want to do this again. It's so different now. So anybody who is a provider who has not sort of tracked that and thought about how they could start now to integrate this into their care providing, that would be a really good thing to do. Interesting data from CDC uh, from back in August of last year, that people who have tested positive are not getting treated, even if they have insurance, only about a third of them have actually gotten the cure. So there's some kind of hesitancy. Some of it's probably the cost, but maybe it's also a system that just hasn't revved up to realize this is a golden moment to do something amazing. So same thing with Medicare patients, only about a third in a year's time period who test positive get cured. What's going on? And in general, they would have coverage for the- They drug. would. They might have a copay. And that's something we want to try to address. As you know, Medicare, if you're in the lowest income bracket, 
that co-pays are very limited or even not there at all. And those folks could probably get this cure without having to cough up funds. But if you're just a little higher in your income bracket, you might get hit with a $4,000 copay for this cure. And that's probably been an inhibitory situation that we ought to fix. I can make an editorial comment. One of our other guests on the podcast, Dr. Emily Wang from Yale, has talked about carceral settings and healthcare there in general. Mm -hmm. And the general agenda of beginning to understand the people who are incarcerated in this country, which happens at a rate far beyond any other country, are returned to communities. And 95% of people who are in prisons or jails will be back in the community. So you may think, well, it's a not relevant to me or it's another population, which I do not agree with. Yeah. And based on the moral argument, it's still going to be your neighbor. Yeah. And so I think the fact that the risks are extremely high in carceral settings is relevant yes. to our well-being. Yeah. And it's a wonderful opportunity there to really capture a significant amount of the virus burden uh, in a place where you have the opportunity to test and cure quite effectively. Patients right there. Especially in federal prisons, state prisons. Local jails are going to be harder because average time people stay is very short. But you could still, if you had test and treat in an hour, that would be an opportunity also to help people. Has anyone done this yet? I mean, has anyone in the world sort of solved this problem all the way through? I know we work a lot in different countries around the world. I know other countries have set goals around this, but has anybody managed it? Has anybody ended or eliminated hepatitis C in their environment? Yes. As in fact, Egypt. Really? <laughs> wow. You know, it's an interesting story. And it began with a terrible public health misadventure where Egypt was mounting a big program to deal with schistosomiasis, a parasitic disease that happens frequently in Egypt, and had a therapy that involved injections and were not careful about clean needles and misuse of needles. And so in the process, while they might have helped schistosomiasis, a lot of people got hepatitis C mm. in Egypt as wow. in, in a very unfortunate way. So they felt particularly motivated to do something about it. And they mounted an uh, effort across the whole country to get everybody tested. They had their own source of drug, which I think was something that was a bit outside of the intellectual property limits that we would have in the US. <laughs> I think their cost for patient for drug was $60. Oh, wow. And they basically very effectively wiped out hepatitis C in the country of Egypt. It's published in the New England Journal three or four years ago. There are efforts. Australia is ahead of us in this. Mm -hmm. The UK is about a year ahead of us in this. Do we want to be last in line? Let's <laughs> not. Let's not. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Francis, let me shift gears for a minute. This is a fascinating story. I hope our listeners will get on board this effort and thank you for leadership. And I want to talk a bit about leadership, which is your, if I can, I hope it's not impolite to say a kind of unicorn. I mean, here you are, <laughs> decades of public service. You ran National Institute of Health for 16 years. What was it? 12. 12 years. Don't, don't make it worse than it was. But you have been a leader in American public policy and biomedicine over decades. And you have, by the way, been a leader across administrations that your leadership of the National Institute of Health bridged three presidencies, mm -hmm. which was a rather unusual thing. How do you think about leading in these very, very difficult and divided times? What's some of the wisdom you've accumulated or lessons about leadership? Because we sure need it. We do. Well, it's been a privilege to have a chance to be involved in those kinds of biomedical efforts because I care deeply about those. But I certainly never had the plan that this was going to be the way I carried out my professional life. I got interested in medicine because I thought science was cool and I wanted to do something that would apply to human beings and discovered that genetics was going to be a great way to try to advance the cause of learning causes and maybe even figuring out cures for a lot of diseases. So I was thinking I would be a faculty member at a university, and it was the University of Michigan when I first got through all my training. That was going to be my career. And I loved that. I loved teaching medical students, and I loved taking care of patients, and I loved doing research. And the opportunity then, which arrived 30 years ago to become a federal employee was not part of my life plan, <laughs> but that's what the offer was to come and lead the Human Genome Project, which was this radical proposal to read out all the letters of the Human DNA Instruction Book. It was a governmental program. Governmental mm -hmm. program. So I had to come to the National Institutes of Health to take on that responsibility at a time where most people were opposed to the project because they thought it wasn't going to work and it was going to probably be a sink for a lot of money that could be better spent elsewhere. So it was not like a, a warm welcome, but it had the same sense of 
consequence. If we actually can do this, this is going to change everything. Hmm. And maybe that's always something I've found irresistible. (laughs) There's something that looks like it really could be profound. Yeah, maybe it's going to be risky and maybe it's going to take a lot of time to build up enthusiasm and vision, but it's worth it because of the consequences. And the Genome Project, although it was a pretty challenging ride, (laughs) it did end up succeeding, actually. Challenging scientifically. Yeah. And politically, this required Congress to decide to appropriate funds for this. There was a challenge from the private sector that they could do this better and the government effort should just sort of close down, which would have been a very bad outcome because that would have basically said the human genome became a commodity instead of being freely accessible Mm -hmm. to everybody. There were a lot of policy issues there. There was a whole question about, is this information going to get used against people? Will your DNA results be a reason that you lose your health insurance or that your employer says, I guess maybe you're not the person we want to promote? That was a real risk. That was 12 years of hard work working with the policy experts and the Congress until the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act got signed in 2008, and now we're protected against that. So I learned in that process sort of how critical it is to have science advances and good policy analysis happening hand in hand and not waiting for a crisis, trying to be anticipatory of what kinds of steps should be made. Then being asked to be the NIH director was not part of the life plan either. Some of this is just how do you say no when you know the president says, I want you to do this. And it seems like your country could benefit from somebody stepping into that role and not saying no. So over the course of the Obama administration and the Trump administration and a year of the Biden administration until I decided, okay, somebody else, (laughs) it's your time. I'm going to step down from this. I did get engaged in a lot of situations where there were opportunities. Again, that's what's kind of grabbed me. But maybe to answer your question, how do you make those things happen? So for instance, the brain initiative. It was like so much the right time, it seemed, in about 2011, 2012, to really bring all of the capabilities of engineers and neuroscientists, cell biologists, robotics experts, computational gurus, and say, can we figure out how the brain works? That's That's, what the brain initiative That's the brain initiative. And that required a lot of sort of building momentum behind, well, aren't we doing this already with a lot of separate initiatives? And yes, yeah, something, but no, how do you make the case that this would go faster if we actually pulled all of these disciplines together? And then ultimately required getting the president of the United States, in that case, Barack Obama, excited about this enough to make it an administration priority. That's the kind of stuff I love because it's like, how can you get exciting science connected to public interests to some good policy plans and build a team enterprise because it's not going to happen unless you can spill across the landscape this excitement, this vision of what could happen. And I love the chances to do that. And I grew up in the theater, so maybe that's part of why I enjoy the opportunity. (laughs) How's that? (laughs) I did. My dad was a college professor of drama. My mother was a playwright. I was shoved on the stage by the time I was five years old. And I learned to love that experience of connecting with an audience. And maybe that's not a bad background to have (laughs) if you're somebody trying to get people excited about the brain initiative or the cancer moonshot, or precision medicine, all of which are things that I had some chance to kind of push forward, maybe a little faster than they would have. In every one of these circumstances, you seem to be casting a big picture aim. There's a vision here that you share with others that helps build a system behind it that creates the result that, in the case of the Human Genome Project, documents every letter in the genome. Yeah. And look what's happened as a result of that. My gosh, we're curing sickle cell disease now. All of the things that I didn't think would happen in my lifetime are. And so when you see that occurring, you just feel motivated to find other situations like that. When you look at the human genome, I mean, very curious about this. Now we're at this perhaps inflection point where you have artificial intelligence coming in and this kind of convergence of information technology and biotechnology. And the genome sits right in the middle of that potentially as being a very important linchpin to unlock our understanding of human biology and health. 
read the tea leaves a bit for us. What do you think <laughs> is on the horizon for us in healthcare going forward? Oh, a lot of things. And I think most of them are going to be positive and exciting and will help with human health. I'm not trying to minimize the concerns about the way in which AI in particular uh, may seem like it could potentially cause real serious harms, especially if it tends to reify prejudices that are already built into the data sets that AI is using to train its view of things, particularly in health. Are we just going to have health disparities locked in to the system because AI sees that as the way we've been doing it before? We got to be very careful about that. But I do think in terms of applications of AI that are going to have the most significant benefit to humankind, it's probably in life sciences. And many of those are just beginning to appear. I mean, I talked about the brain initiative. We now know so much about individual cells in the brain and what they're doing, but putting it all together, about how does that turn into real knowledge about circuits? And could we figure out from this actually how you do lay down a memory and how you retrieve it? You're going to need a lot more than staring at pieces of paper. This is going to have to be a big, hairy, audacious AI kind of effort. But I think we're well on the path to seeing that happen. Similarly, I mean, understanding the genome We're never going to get there without having huge data sets and a very efficient machine learning process to understand this almost miraculous thing that we're all born with this 3 billion letters of script that is enough in biological terms to take you from a single cell to this incredibly complicated organism with trillions of cells. How does that work? And Of course, only 2% of that genome is coding for proteins. The rest is all the regulatory stuff that makes this possible. And it's an incredibly elegant, but really difficult to understand uh, program that's going on there. AI is helping us already a lot. My lab studies diabetes. That's the main disease we're, we're looking at right now. And we want to understand how the genetic factors in diabetes actually work. And they're all in this regulatory stuff. If you walked into my lab 10 years ago, you'd see people working at the bench. You walk in my lab now and you'd see one or two at the bench and everybody else is at the computer. At a computer. Right. Right. (laughs) I can't help digging a little more into this before we close this leadership issue. And I'm asking for the leadership manual, according to Dr. Francis Collins. One one of the things that comes through and it has from the day I met you is this sense of vision and big picture and optimism. I get excited listening to you (laughs) at a time when excitement may be in short supply. You know, our listeners, I'm sure, as I feel as I feel in a country which is so divided, red blue, left, mm-hmm. right, our Republican, Democrat, racial divisions. People are hungry for ways to build bridges. I don't want to be naive about it. We have a lot of political yeah. problems, but you've managed to navigate through this very difficult terrain and still extract positive uh, public policy momentum and, and investment and Clearly vision is part of it. Any other secrets you want to share? Or is this just going to stay in, stay yours? No, I'm glad to talk about it because Don, I am really worried about the divisiveness that's afflicting us right now as a society where we do seem to have separated into tribal bubbles and have more trouble figuring out how the people who are not in our in-group are even sensible. It's kind of gone from thinking that they were misguided to thinking that they're evil. Hmm. We have a serious sort of disintegration of the usual way in which we give people the benefit of the doubt. And it's all been fed by a lot of misinformation. COVID-19 should have been a reason to come together. Instead, it kind of drove us apart, again, into very disagreeable parties. Politics has unfortunately made it worse with positions that seem to be taken that are the opposite of bringing people together, sometimes by prominent leaders who you would think would worry about how they're going to be viewed in history, but maybe not. So if there was ever a moment to try to figure out how do we do the bridging, it feels like this would be it. I'm actually trying to write a book about science, truth, and trust, because it's not one thing. It's not good enough to say if we all were agreeing to what was true, we ought to decide who is trustworthy to provide that truth. And the fourth part of it is faith. I'm a person of faith. It's still my hope that faith communities who have this anchor that should be attached to loving your neighbor and even loving your enemies uh, might be in a position to try to achieve some kind of coming together. But unfortunately, at the moment, I think faith communities, if anything, have been more easily knocked off course by all of the political messages, many of which are the opposite of their faith foundations. I still believe, I've spent a lot of time with Braver Angels, which is a group that's trying to bring together 
perspectives on opposite sides of an issue. And my sessions have all been about public health. It's helped me a lot to listen, Mm -hmm. to listen to people out in the heartland who are just furious about what happened with public health edicts from COVID. And I can understand better about why they feel that way and why they think of someone like me as this elitist in Washington, D.C., who has nothing to do with what they're experiencing and yet expects them to follow these guidelines. So there's a lot of listening we could all be doing. What I also find is in those sessions, after we've spent an hour and a half, two hours expressing our unhappiness with each other, that there's a softening that happens. And ultimately, when you go around the room, invariably, the number one response about what happened here is, I found out we weren't that far apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 You have been a public in the most dignified way about your faith, Francis. Do you mind saying how has that played a role in your ability to be a bridge builder? Mm-hmm. Think? I think it is an anchor that I depend on a lot. It helps you with perspective when you're having a circumstance where you feel like everything's going the wrong way or somebody's going after you in a way that you don't think you deserved. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. like, you know, it's not that big a deal. <laughs> this is not actually going to be transformative for me or anybody else. I start almost every day, reflecting on faith issues, maybe reading a bit of scripture, spending a little time in prayer, trying to get myself ready for whatever the day is going to offer. And somehow then whatever the day has to offer seems both brighter and less threatening. So yeah, I'm grateful that I have that as a foundation. And People hearing that might think, oh, you must be one of those people who grew up in a church tradition and you never got over it. Not me. (laughs) I was an atheist as a graduate student. I became a person of faith in medical school when I began trying to figure out what do people do when they're facing death and realized I didn't have a good answer. Science, truth, trust, and faith. That's uh, maybe uh, some important watchwords for uh, Dr. Collins' way of leading. Thank you for being part of our conversation here today. We leave all of our programs with a final question to our guests, which is, as you look out into the world, you see a lot of different points of view right now, from scientists to politicians to everybody, public health, the heartland, as you described it. Where do you rate on the optimism to pessimism spectrum about where we are in healthcare today? Certainly in terms of my rating of how we're doing, it would not be very positive. And I think a lot of it is both the fact that our healthcare system is not equitable um, and we haven't done nearly enough to face that. And we do have all these divisions and angry exchanges and a lot of misinformation. So on a scale of, you know, let's give letter grades, I'd give us a C minus <laughs> as our healthcare system. But as far as optimism, which is maybe what you're really asking, I guess I am unable to step away from a sort of relentless sense of hope that Winston Churchill was right, that you can always count on the Americans to do the right thing after they exhaust all the other (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we're getting close to that with our political situation. So I'm an optimist and I haven't found any reason not to be. Well, thank you so much for being part of our conversation here and being part of Turn On The Lights. Dr. Francis Collins, appreciate you being here with us. It's been a great conversation. Thank you both for what you're doing to spread the word. Thank you. Thank you. Don, I feel like we could have talked for another two hours with Francis there. I mean, it's just, he's got such an incredible range of his thoughts, his ideas, what he's worked on historically, what he's working on today. We could really have gone a lot of different directions with him. Yeah, just his personal presence and his sense of possibility. I mean, this is a guy who imagined the genome project, (laughs) imagining eradicating disease in the entire nation. That kind of energy is so valuable. I mean, he's got this incredible ability to, to see this vision that he has of the future, whether it's the genome, whether it's the brain, mapping the whole brain, you know, trying to eradicate a disease. Every one of his projects is scaled at the level of being a complete game changer for us. Yeah. And he has this interesting combination of that vision, the scale you're just talking about, but his feet are firmly on the ground in terms of implementation. Yeah. He's thinking through, even if he isn't talking completely about it, the congressional processes, how to yeah. win over the executive branch, what right. to do with the private sector supporters. So he's... he's uh, a master um, tactician or, or I guess, strategy. He, he straddles an interesting line. He actually talked a little bit about it or alluded to it, which is that as the science was maturing in the genome, he had to have sort of in tandem a policy process to protect the genome in some ways and ensure that we were going to be in a good position somehow. So it's a very interesting kind of this marriage of science and policy. He thoroughly embodies in a really important way. And one wonders what the world would do if we didn't have Dr. Francis Collins at the helm of the Genome Project. I agree with you. Well, it would have been privatized. 
And yeah. what has become now an international public domain resource, the genome might never have been there without him and probably some others that were saying, no, this, the other thing is, is I would argue in almost bipartisan way, a fan of the proper rule of government, because a lot of the big things that he has accomplished, he sees how strong government can be as a productive player in production of science, in translation of science to policy. The other thing is, though, he's willing to play with the private sector, isn't he? This uh, Louisiana story... Yeah. About the Netflix approach. To, yeah, let's work uh, with Gilead to make the Gilead. medicine available to yeah. everyone in Louisiana. So I don't know, somehow this guy knows a bit about bridge building that we all could learn from. Yeah. The Louisiana story and the story of hepatitis C in general is really interesting. I remember when the medications came out for hepatitis C, how exciting it was on one hand. And then the pricing schedule came out and it was like, oh my goodness, how are we ever going to afford that? It's going to be the province only of the few. And what Dr. Collins is trying to do is make it available to everyone who needs it, which is pretty exciting if we can make it work. The story is not over because there'll have to be a negotiation, ongoing negotiation between the, frankly, for-profit interests around drug development and the hepatitis C drugs and availability to everybody. And it is true that a lot of the people that come benefit from this drug are people who never, ever would be able to get the drug for anything close to the price we're talking about. And so intervention through appropriate policy negotiation is the only way to do it. It did strike me that they're carefully mapping out, almost in the way that we would do in a quality improvement initiative, the key process failures that are, exist in a scaled program, right? There's the testing problem, that struck me as a reliability problem. You know, we have to cut people back and come shuttling back and forth between the clinic three, four or five times in order to get a diagnosis made and then get the subsequent treatment. He's saying, we don't need to do that. There's technology available that we can do this on day one test you and we treat you right there in the same session. If we managed to do that alone, it would improve the reliability of our service massively. You know, this is very, I think, important dynamic that is at play here between how to understand the system, how to make sure the policy works with it, how to create an economic argument that could lead to solving yeah, this problem. That whole concept, one-stop shopping, which just make it really, really simple for the patient is a very powerful idea. And like, I think you were hinting, it may apply way to conditions far from... Yeah. I have to wonder if the, I guess he called it a Netflix idea Netflix for, idea. for uh, Louisiana. I got to imagine that that may yeah. be relevant for other conditions. Certainly other states other be looking to the Louisiana model for how to do it in their backyards. I was interested in his answer to the optimism pessimism question because he is obviously a biotechnical optimist. He believes problems really can be solved, but a little more cautious, cautious, cautious yeah. in his answer about the American healthcare system, which is sort of why we have this podcast, Turn on the Lights, I think. He answered the question differently than anyone else to date. How so? Because he split the question into a grade for us today and a grade for us in the future. Uh-huh. And he said, today, we're whatever, he gave us a C minus or something, <laughs> which may be a little bit more on the pessimistic side of the scale, but his relentless hope message was about the future. So it felt to me like he was maybe grading us more pessimistically now, but that wasn't the full range of his view on the potential future for our country and the yeah, world. Yeah, hope matters and... Anyway, it's a privilege to meet a leader like him. That's my feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. What an honor. Thank you so much, Don. Thanks, Gator. Thanks for listening to Turn on the Lights, where we're trying to shed light on the thorniest problems and the most innovative solutions in healthcare. We'd like to help you understand. To listen to more episodes or find the show notes and other resources, please visit us at IHI.org. Thank you.